It is Tuesday, December 6, 2017 at 4.03 in the afternoon Mountain Time, 3.03 Pacific Time. And the reason I'm mentioning the Pacific Time Zone is I am re- uh, have a guest on the line here named uh, Jason Williams. This is the LDS Podcast. My name is Kevin Williams, no relation by the way. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and like it on Facebook at LDSLifePodcast.com. That's LDS Life Podcast, or uh, no, I'm sorry, that's the website. If you want to like it on Facebook, go ahead and like it on, uh, just go ahead and do a search on LDS Life Podcast, and it'll come up, and you can go ahead and like it. That's where you'll get the latest information on the podcast. And uh, pretty soon, I will be on Twitter. In fact, I'm going to be probably working on that uh, in about a month or so, so... Expect a Twitter feed. Uh, uh, incidentally, I will not be posting on as much as Donald Trump posts on his, maybe. But uh, nonetheless, I will be on Twitter soon. And uh, Jason Williams is my guest. Uh, Jason is not LDS, but he has something in common that uh, a lot of LDS people have, and that is freedom. Jason is the president. Are you the president, or are you something else of the uh, Taxpayers Association of Oregon? I am the exalted executive director. You're the executive, okay. And founder. And you were, how did you get started into politics, first of all? Uh, how did it get started in politics? There, I was in college, and this was back in the 80s, and someone was going to burn an American flag as a protest on campus. And I decided uh, I had my American flag from my uh, grandfather who served in the military, and I was going to go out there and counter-protest him and when I did, I appeared on all three TV news stations and on the front page of the school newspaper with a flag behind me, and I, uh, it was something that just kind of catapulted me. It's like, hey, politics is where it's at. Um, and uh, so that, uh, and from there, I just kind of realized that as much as I wanted to p- help people in life, um, that I realized that when government makes a mistake, uh, it destroys people's lives faster than I could personally put them back together again. So I said, yeah, maybe, maybe politics is where I could go and to help uh, heal the country and communities and put things back together again. And so that's kind of how I got hooked. Now, you were an intern. By the way, uh, you're an Oregon native, I, I assume, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yep. we have something in common. I'm from Ontario, Oregon. And yeah. yeah, where where in Oregon are you from? I am. I've always been pretty much uh, around the uh, the Portland area, which is uh, Oregon's major city and uh, source of uh, uh, ridicule and craziness for the the media. Uh, we often do things in Oregon that no one else does. And uh, in fact, they did a TV series called Portlandia. It was a comedy series, and uh, with. <laughs> They didn't know they were going to make fun of them when the TV series came in and, and the city welcomed them, but uh, everyone got a good laugh on it, and I think it's been going on for nearly uh, nearly nearly a dozen seasons so far. I have to ask you, we're going to get nerdy for a minute about Portland, and then we'll get to the rest of the podcast, we'll get to the gist of this podcast. Do you happen to know of a program over there called Livewire? Um, yeah, it sounds familiar, but I can't... Uh, I, I think it's at the uh, the Alberta Theater. Does that ring a bell to you? No. Or the, I think that's what it's called. It's uh, put on by, I think it's Lou Banks, Lou Fairbanks, something like that. He's on uh, National Public Radio. But he does a show out of Portland called Livewire. 
I do not agree with this politics. By the way, you can find it on uh, OPB Radio over there in Portland. Uh, National Public Radio nationwide. And uh, I do not agree with his politics, but he's very innovative. And uh, interestingly enough, his last guest was uh, Eric Weinmayer, who is the first, and as far as I know, the only blind person to climb Mount Everest. Ooh. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, real quick here, and then we'll get into the rest of the broadcast, because I have been in broadcasting, and I try to keep up with radio. How well do you know Lars Larson? Uh, he is uh, everyone's favorite uh, media celebrity here in Oregon. And um, he has a national broadcast, but he also has an Oregon broadcast. And so I've known him for a long time. And every time I'm on his show, um, it's great because then everyone, everyone's heard it. He has a huge reach. What is he? Okay, first of all, how is he so popular in such a liberal state? Um, well, uh, Oregon is a little bit different, uh, because uh, even though there are a lot of liberals, it's still, um, there are a lot of conservatives to match them, and the conservatives uh, and liberals is a different breed. Our liberals are more liberal than the average American state, and our conservatives are more conservative than the average state. Um, and so it, it means that there's always a big audience for conservative and freedom-friendly and free enterprise uh, ideals. Uh, but it is, um, Oregon does do things where they've rejected almost every tax increase at the ballot for nearly 50 years, except for like three. Um, but we do some libertarian things as well. We were one of the first to uh, legalize uh, assisted suicide, one of the first to legalize marijuana, medical marijuana. Um, so it's kind of a, it's a very interesting mix of very strong liberals, very strong conservatives, very libertarian, very populist, but also it kind of has more of a, has a very big Democrat edge, and so that kind of casts a shadow uh, and, and drives the state more than it should. So would you say, because I've been in Oregon, it seems like the majority of your liberals come from Portland, Eugene, I don't know so much about Bend, but definitely Portland, Eugene. What about along the coast? Yeah, there are, um, but the, the big cities really have a huge liberal con contingency, and uh, a lot of liberals like to come here because, I mean, we're, we're doing big government programs, spending a lot of money on big, nice, shiny liberal things, and so that attracts some people. Um, and uh, yeah, there is uh, there is some liberals along the coast, but our rural Oregon uh, very much uh, very conservative, uh, very um, very principled, and so it creates interesting uh, a dynamic in Oregon. It's it's not always as uh, black and white as it is in other states. Oh no, the, yeah, there's definitely a difference between uh, the eastern half and the northern half. I would, I suspect the Medford area is pretty conservative too. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, Medford very conservative. In fact, we we made the news last year where we had some people occupy a, uh, a little federal wildlife building. It was the Malheur Refuge. Yes, I interviewed a person yeah. who was uh, who was at that place. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so it's like um, not only do we have the Occupy Wall Street people, but we had some people that were that that were conservative, and they 
they took over a, uh, a little wildlife building for, yep. it felt like a month or two, and they just said, hey, we're, we're tired of being picked on as ranchers, and we want to stand up for our constitutional rights. And so we had a very high-profile national uh, drama going on. Oh, yeah, yeah I watched the standoff. I felt like I was watching a movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what's interesting about that is that standoff was not, well, it wasn't a standoff at first. Let's make that clear. It wasn't a standoff till the FBI came, by definition. But that was actually orchestrated by uh, Ammon Bundy out of Nevada. Uh, well, I guess he lived in Idaho at the time. Ammon Bundy and Robert Lavoie Finnicum out of Arizona. Uh, but yes. Yeah, and I think Finnicum was, was shot. Yeah. Uh, in the process, in a kind of a heated uh, police chase. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, Eamon Bundy is, if I can understand this correctly, he's like the son of a, another Bundy in Nevada who was wanted. Yes, Clive. Had another, yeah, standoff, and it was interesting because apparently that father who was wanted by the FBI, but they could never get him for a previous standoff in Nevada, and when... His dad flew uh, a small plane to come to Oregon. The, the FBI was ready there at the airport and nabbed him after they'd been wanting him for a long time, and then suddenly he just walked off a plane, and that was that was uh, his demise. Um, I don't. Yeah. So I don't know why he flew to Portland. He could have flown to Boise. It was much closer to Burns. But anyway, yeah. So there's a big difference between the the. Uh, Oregon, and I, I want to go back to Lars Larson real quick, then we'll get into the just... Sure. The, what is Lars Larson like in person? I've always wondered that. Um, he's kind of a larger-than-life person. He just... What you see on the radio, or what you hear on the radio, is very much what he's like. He is a mile a minute. He is just constantly engaged and just talking and just really just hammering home ideas and so his mind is always going on so what it takes you know when you're a radio host um especially when you're on the national level it, it, you're genetically different than the average human being you have a brain that's like a supercomputer and your ability to remember facts and wanting to communicate it all the time um so hats off to those people uh that, that can do that because it's uh we really need that uh, as our kind of our our chief communicators here Oh, yeah. Yeah, now I know Lars Larson was uh, against what the Bundys were doing. I uh, listened to the radio show that day when uh, the people down in uh, Oregon were found innocent, which I was shocked. Were you? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. It shocked us all. I mean, they, they basically, you know, they occupied this building for what felt like a few months, uh, and the government's case was this was a conspiracy and it, it, the government's case was very narrow, and it had to do something with, like, you know, we, you had to prove that they worked together and wanted to do certain things, and they put too much burden on a small um, on a small case, and so it just is one of those things where it really worked against them, and that just magnified their celebrity uh, uh for beating the federal government in their own case. Uh, and, you know, it was it was a very controversial thing. I mean, they came in there. They came in there to the defense of a guy, of a rancher, who was really picked on by the federal government. The federal government was oh, yeah. putting this guy in jail because he was, his because the way he burned his, um, uh, his, his land. And, 
it was a crazy case, but as, when the when the Bundys came in or when Eamon came in, uh, the case really went the the cause really went beyond uh, what the people he was sticking up for. In fact, the people he was sticking up for, the, the guy in jail, really distanced himself, and it just became something different. Uh, and I think that that's where a lot of people, conservatives, are like, okay, you know what's going on here. I remember when I was watching it, I I saw a YouTube video about one of the guys in the in the ranch, and he was driving a, a federal truck, and he was he was. He was doing a, a YouTube video of him driving the truck. He's saying, hey, look at me. I'm driving a government truck, and no one can stop me. I can do whatever I want. He's peeling out and doing all this stuff. Well, that was Exhibit A in his trial. For, oh, wow. By the know, way, uh, uh, if you're interested, Jason, I go extensively into what happened uh, with Channel Lee Tobias. I can give you the website of my podcast, and you can go check it out. It was really interesting. Sure, yeah. So there were a lot of things kind of playing into it, but I think... Uh, things kind of got a little bit out of hand. And so, oh, yeah. A yeah. little bit, yeah. I, I think it was, because uh, I talked to someone who's really close to the Bundys. Uh, I think the Bundys meant well. I don't think it was them. I think it was probably some of the people that came after them and things like that. But anyway, uh, so you got into politics in college. You saw an American flag being burnt. Uh, one of the things that I have read is that you used to be an intern for Governor Roberts back in 1988. What was she in, in 1988? I know she wasn't governor then. Uh, no, I, I, I was an intern when she was governor. She was a, a liberal Democrat governor. I actually grew up uh, liberal, so it was, you know, some of my first political jobs were um, working for liberals, uh, and it was just slowly I had began to change as people would would explain to me uh, conservatism, but uh, and I think a lot of people, a lot of conservatives, don't realize what it's like to be a liberal. And sometimes we talk past each other. And I want to say the stereotypes of liberals as being very kind of emotional. It's a big part of it. I mean, when I held my liberal beliefs, it made me feel so good. It was unbelievably. And so when someone asked me to change them, it's like, well, wait a minute, you're asking me to no longer be a good person or feel like a good person because you know conservatives our values they don't necessarily make us feel good but we feel like more of a, a sense of like what we're doing is is you know we're standing up for absolute values and that they they're sacred and they're important it's a different level of feeling and so uh i always have to tell conservatives when you're talking to liberals you need to you have to change your language you have to you have to meet them on their level and say and oftentimes i won't even talk to a liberal engage into a debate until i first tell them how much i care about the topic we're talking about and then they kind of understand they're they're more open to changing their ideas once you know what your motivations are and it's just funny so liberals and conservatives fall into these uh, patterns and you need to realize that if you if you if your goal is to really help change uh, someone's uh, political and philosophical beliefs. Well, yeah, you you marked up uh, you got on a, an interesting topic that I want to get to here. I used to be a liberal, hmm. but people would always tell me I am pretty conservative for a liberal, which meant. Um, <laughs> In Utah, it's a pretty conservative state. Not so much where I'm at here in the Salt Lake area, 
But you get down to southern Utah and Cedar City, Utah County down in Provo, although Provo's becoming more liberal. But you really get out uh, into central Utah, uh, Manti, Fillmore, probably towns you haven't heard of, Cedar City down south, St. Uh, George's mixed bag. Pretty conservative. So it's kind of interesting because Utahns would, uh, particularly those in Cedar City and down in that area where I went to college, thought I was pretty liberal. But then I used to go to Buffalo, New York every summer to see a friend of mine, and people there thought I was really conservative. I, I always found that kind of ironic. What do you make of that? Uh, that's how it is sometimes. Um, you know, I mean, you have a lot of people that are liberals, but sometimes they're blue-collar. So they will be for, okay, well, I'm for guns and I'm for lower taxes, but I love unions. But then they don't always realize how unions can sometimes hurt the worker. Um, and so it's, it's a complicated thing, but I, I always, and I worry about today because, I mean, we're going through a season uh, where the political debate is just toxic and it's just, it's just awful. And I think um, we're forgetting to spend time discussing with each other. And, I, and I'm, I get horrified at these studies that show that people that have a political view have no friends who are different from them. And there's, and there's also a lot of studies on about, you know, people don't have friends uh, not only who do you do not disagree, who you disagree with politically, but uh, people are not having friends who are different class level. Uh, it hasn't always been like this, and Americans are kind of like getting into these bubbles, uh, and where they're separated by class and political uh, affiliations. In fact, I've, I've seen one pollster who says that neighborhoods are beginning to become a little bit more politically homogenous because there's some type of uh, unknown, invisible attraction and gravity that kind of brings people of like-mindedness politically together in a neighborhood. And that's, that's not good, and, and we need to, to reach across the, the aisle and always keep the lines of communication and always be willing to listen. Um, and uh, we got some big debates happening here in, in our country, and... We can't let, uh, it can't be won by a debate. It needs to be won by a discussion. Let's just be clear. Can we be honest with ourselves and say that when we run into someone who's a liberal, it seems to me the people I've ran into that are liberal, when you really get down to it, uh, I'll give you an example. I was at an event last year. Uh, shortly before, let's see, actually it was last year at about this time, I ran into someone, I needed to get a ride home, I couldn't find one, and I ran into someone else who was having the same problem, and I said, why don't you come with me, I'll take, I'll uh, have Uber take you to the light rail station, uh, because unfortunately I couldn't afford to pay the whole entire way there, or else I would have, believe me. And she was fine with that, and then we started, I, said, I asked, what's your uh, majoring in college. She said, I'm political science. I said, you liberal, conservative, or what? She said, oh, I'm a liberal. And I said, okay, I'm pretty conservative. And she goes, oh, I hope you'll still give me a, I'll, I hope you'll still let me ride with you with Uber. And I said, of course. <laughs> and uh, yeah. we got to talking. She vote, She really, she voted for, She. I, I'm pretty sure she voted for Hillary Clinton, although she was a Bernie Sanders fan. But as we got to talking, I found out 
we had a lot more in common than I thought we did. What, what do you make of that? Because it seems like a lot of people say, oh, I'm liberal. Maybe they are on their issues. But it seems like we do have a lot more in common with maybe your neighbor who's a liberal. What do you think? Yeah. I, I mean, if, if you sit and talk long enough, you'll realize you, you have the same goals, but it's just different ways of, of getting there. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're interested in what works, you know. <laughs> but here's, okay, so what would you say, because I consider myself fairly conservative, but I am very liberal about mass transit, probably because I'm using it. I'm very liberal about, well, somewhat liberal about government programs, and we'll talk about that later in the podcast, because I do want to get to measure number five, because um, I was there in Oregon when that passed. I was 10 years old. I remember that pretty well. Um... So what would you say to someone like me who probably maybe is 20% liberal? I'd say I still love you. <laughs> okay, Brother. but would you... Because even back when I was a liberal, I had conservatives tell me I wasn't your typical liberal. And I, w I never was sure what that was supposed to mean. They yeah. said, yeah, I, I was liberal, but I wasn't your typical liberal because... Maybe it's because I always listened to the other side. Maybe it's because I always listened to conservative talk radio, even though I was not on the same page as the conservatives. Because, number one, that's, you know, you listen to talk radio, it's mostly conservative. But number two, I always thought it was a good idea to listen to both sides of the story. Even today, uh, even though I am more conservative than I have been, uh... I still listen to CNN and things like that because I want to know what the other side's thinking. Yeah. Well, I, I would say, uh, you know, you said about 20% liberal. I, I think you reflect what a lot of Americans, um, what their values are, because if you if you poll Americans, they, they are very much... Uh, have a lot of diversity in their their beliefs. They might tell you, "Man, I, I hate big government," but then it's like, "Well, yeah, I hate big business," or "I w let's cut taxes for business, but let's also jack up the minimum wage for them." You know, those for some people, it's like, "Wait a minute, that is just diametrically you have things." But no, the the American palate, the political palate, is very uh, very diverse. It has a lot of variety to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so someone, you know, could have you know, 30% of what they believe or 40% of what they believe would be opposite of the majority of what they believe. Um, but it's, they've reasoned it out in their own way. And um, I, I think it's important for conservatives to know this because it, when it comes to winning at the ballot box or with a candidate, we have to craft our messages so that it resonates with people and we're not talking to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if we are living in a bubble, um, then we, our communication is, is, you know, is, it will not get across. And I think that's one of the, the communication is, has been something that liberals have perfected. They're brilliant at that. And conservatives uh, are sometimes tone deaf when it comes to communication. And we, we miss the, the human argument uh, to our to our arguments, we uh, we just don't understand. So what we're the conversation we're having here today, I, I can't tell you how important it is to have. Yeah, and I honestly I did not anticipate this conversation to uh, come up, but I'm glad it is because this is something that I think needs to be talked about. Yeah, very much so, very much so, and 
if conservatives, if they really value their values, they will do their homework and figure out what's the best way to communicate them. And there's no, we just can't stand up in our pride and say, hey, I'm right, I'm just going to tell it like it is, and and then uh, people don't want it, then, you know, to, to heck with them. It's like, no, we have to work. If we really care about our country and and, and our principles, we gotta we got to constantly figure out ways that we can uh, convince the public around us uh, about our cause and, and take the country the direction we want to. Yeah, now, uh, I want to get... So, let me ask you this before I talk about some other things. At what point, because I know you uh, grew up liberal and you... I know Governor Barbara Roberts was not governor in 1988. I don't know what she was when you were an intern. Were you an intern for her after 88? Because it said on an article that you were an intern for her in 88. She must have uh, no, been I was, legislature. Uh, yeah, I think I was an intern around 92, 91. Oh, okay. So. Um, yeah, I remember Governor... I actually wrote her a letter once. She wrote me a really detailed letter back. It was actually quite nice. Um, but... Um, at what point did you officially declare yourself as a conservative, and what was the breaking point? <laughs> um, it it took a few. It took a long time because it was just issue by issue. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think you had to learn with you know taxes were too high, and you know you had to learn that. Uh, you know, government waste money, and then you had to learn that certain programs. I think gun control was the hardest one for me to let go. Uh, but I would just sit there and have a conversation with someone, and he'd say, "You know, uh, so whenever we do all these gun control laws, it doesn't change gun violence." And I'd be like, "What? That, what? That can't be true." You know, and so I really didn't want to let go of believing in gun control. But when I uh, uh, what I did, you know, I just, I just knew when, when I saw the facts, it's like, okay, if I want to reduce gun violence, there are other things outside of ideas that don't work. And I just think over time, just, you know, when you start growing in politics, you start looking at the presidential races, you can really see the, the difference between the candidates and what they're promising and what they're doing. And, of course, yeah. By the way, and for the... But, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it is interesting that if you look at people's lives, people really do start out liberal. And as soon as they get a job, uh, get married, or and have kids, they quickly begin to adopt more conservative stances. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting cycle that people go through, but it's very predictable uh, here in America that that happens. And I was just one of those people that went through that. Yeah, except for I know some people that got married and have kids and are still liberal. What would you say to that one? The uh, well, that that happens too. But uh, there is just something about that those three stages of, of of growing up, going through life, where people now it begins to impact you. I mean, my first paycheck was for one day of working, and it was like twenty four dollars, but I only got twelve. I'm like. What? You know, it was like, well, yeah, because they take out half for taxes. And it's like, hey, that made me angry as nobody's business. So, yeah. There, yeah. Well, let's talk about, because uh, uh, you are, you're the, 
what's your title again? The the I'm the executive director. Executive director. Okay, I, I that's what I thought of uh, the Taxpayers Association of Oregon. And you, I guess John McIntyre found it. Were you involved at all in fighting against measurement or measure number five? Because I know that passed in 1990. Yes. Uh, measure five, uh, as you know, was uh, to let the audience know, was, was to limit property taxes. It, it shook an earthquake. It started the whole property tax revolt here in Oregon. And no, in 1990, I was a liberal and I voted against it. So uh, I... <laughs> I didn't know better, so uh, and I think it might have been '92 when that was, but I didn't. Uh, so yeah, right around the early '90s, I was voting. I was voting for big taxes and voting against Don McIntyre's um, uh, tax limitation measures. But within ten years, I was face to face with Mr. McIntyre saying, "Hey, let's form the Taxpayer Association," and I was a full blown conservative low-tax patriot. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, let's go over measurement number five. Maybe we can get into another discussion, and then I do want to talk about uh, what we can do for freedom around the world, and we'll tie this into LDS here. I know we're kind of going sporadically, but I kind of like this. Uh, The best podcasts that I've done are free-flowing like this. Let's just go with it. Measurement number five, the biggest complaint that I heard, because I... Being a blind person, uh, I have benefited from a lot of liberalism. Let's just be honest. There's a lot of social programs out there that I, as a blind person, have taken advantage of. And I don't know if you're aware. Uh, One advantage to being in a liberal state as a blind person, especially growing up in the 80s, there were a ton of programs just for blind people. I don't know how it is now. But back in the 80s, there were all kinds of things I took advantage of as a kid that, uh, let's just face it, came through liberal policies. And again, I'm not a bleeding heart liberal, but, you know, uh, parents would want me to take advantage of it. My parents certainly did, for good reason. I definitely got a lot out of the program as far as how to be more independent as a blind person. And things like that. So I remember when this passed, my dad was not happy about it, even though he was pretty conservative. I think probably because he was afraid of how it would affect me. And uh, let's get into that, because that was a big argument that uh, teachers would use at school. Oh, it's going to cut our budget. It's going to do this, this, this. And I moved out of Oregon before we really felt the effect of it. But I'm sure that uh, maybe it did cut into the budget uh, of the blind school. Maybe it did cut into these programs that us blind people took advantage of. Uh, so what would you say to that? Because that is an argument that a lot of people... You bet, you uh, bet. And this uh, this was um, the things that were going on in Oregon and California in the late 80s and the early 90s. This was the taxpayer revolt that uh, shook the country. Because in the 70s and times before, people really approved a lot of taxes, and the idea that people said enough is enough uh, was a little bit more rare than what we expect today. So um, when McIntyre, he actually put up several measures, and they were all knocked down to, to cut property taxes, and finally with this Measure 5, um, the opponents, they, they put out TV commercials with a chainsaw going through you know, like 
school textbooks or senior ca- senior citizen uh, canes and stuff like that, saying this is going to just devastate uh, Oregon government. Uh, and uh, voters said, to heck, they got caught up in the tax revolt, and they said, no, we're going to limit our taxes. So, uh, and the, the local school district of the biggest school district said, we're gonna have, I'm going to have to give a pink slip to every single teacher in Oregon if this passes. None of that came true. In fact, uh, the state budget grew, uh, it probably grew faster and bigger than um, it ever had been. Um, and to the point we are today, we still have these limits with uh, the property tax, and yet Oregon, we're like number seven biggest spending state in the nation, so we spend more than you people in Utah per person. So <laughs> our government is just overwhelmingly big. Uh, so even though we put a cap on property taxes, government still found its money, and it's never about do you know are we going to have enough money to fund the school of the blind or give um, your grandmother uh, her medication? Uh, it's always a debate for us about are we going to give benefits to blind people or are we going to do what we do here in Oregon, spend forty million dollars of taxpayer money building a private hotel uh, and just giving it to a big business or spending 20 million and giving it to Hollywood film companies to do work here it's always a matter of uh, our priorities <laughs> so are we going to give it to a are we going to give a million dollars to a hotel chain or in this case it was 40 million dollars to a hotel chain to say hey come build us a convention center hotel are we going to give it to um, helping the blind uh, senior citizens uh, transit services? And right now, Oregon just blows money like you can't believe. Yeah, in fact, I want to get into that. Uh, I should have mentioned at the first of the podcast, you do have a website, watchdogoregon.com. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I was uh, perusing the website. It's like, it reminds me of the Drudge Report, except for, I call it the Drudge Report of Oregon, but on steroids. Would you think that's a good explanation? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's OregonWatchdog.com, and we did model it after Drudge Report. Every morning we just list the news, the Oregon political news. And, um, yeah, so a lot of crazy stuff happens here in Oregon. we we do things that other states don't do and you know we had uh, we, we tried to build a bridge we spent a quarter of a billion dollars studying building a bridge and then decided not to do it when I read the that. Obamacare yeah yeah when Obamacare came out we spent 30 million dollars so the states that bought into Obamacare had to build their own websites so we spent 30 no 300 million. $300 million building a health exchange website that did not work and didn't enroll a single person, had to be scrapped. Um, yeah, so we, we, we do a lot of crazy things here in Oregon. Um, so please do not, if you want to know where the path of liberalism takes you, look to Oregon, and they come up with these ideas and say, oh, we can do it, we can do it. And we spend tens of millions of dollars on something, and it collapses, and then they find some other shiny, new, bright object to go chase and say, this will solve everything. Yeah, and 
Yeah, yeah, right now I do want to get into something. You're trying to fight, uh, I guess, uh, Governor Kate Brown put a sales tax on health care. What is the percentage of that tax? I, could, I couldn't find it on your website. Um, I think it's... I'd have to check. I think it's like uh, around less than uh, 1%. It's a tax. It taxes five different things. One of them is it taxes people health care uh, premiums. It taxes uh, to tax on hospitals itself. Um, so they catch you. They catch you at your insurance level, and then they cat tax you at getting your hospital bill. It's it's just insane. Three hundred thirty million dollar uh, tax um, that it raises. But for if you're a small business, you know you might have to pay. You know, an extra few thousand dollars if you've got a dozen employees for just providing health care tax. And a lot of businesses, health care has gone so much, they just drop it. They say, I can't afford to give health care. I want to give health care insurance to my employees, but I just got to, uh, I just got to drop it. And so, yeah, so we, you know, we do things like that. We were, when the recession hit, the the, the state policy in the, in the, in Oregon was, Let's try to get as many people on food stamps as possible because we know they're out there. And so they just started putting advertising out there. They started going to festivals and everything to say, please sign up for food stamps. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, we don't even have that here in Utah. Yeah, we won an award from Obama from his health department, and we actually got like a million dollars for signing up so many people on food stamps. And we became, we tied with, I think, uh, Alabama or Arkansas for having the most citizens on food stamps. I mean, it was just a huge percentage of our oh, population wow. that were on food stamps. And, and I've got to add this. Food stamps, it's, 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 it's national. You can buy almost anything in the store with food stamps as long as it's not hot or served or alcohol. But if you want to buy, uh, if you want to buy $100 worth of Doritos, <laughs> you can yes, do it if you yes. want to buy a, a sword fish uh, fillet steak. You can buy it. Um, there's almost nothing you cannot buy food item uh, with food stamps. So a lot of students bought got on there because they you know they don't have much money, so they qualify and they they would buy all of their liquor supplies. Uh, you know your your uh, margarita salt and your limes and lemons and and all your party snacks and appetizers and then they used cash to buy their liquor and so you basically had taxpayer funded liquor parties for uh for people being you know anyways for students not to mention you can buy schwann's food on food stamps you can buy things at, at some farmers markets on food stamps you can buy sushi in the deli with food stamps. It's, um, yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, and, you know, they have it now where you just use, a, like, a little debit card. Uh, yeah, it's they a had PDT the, they card. They call it the yeah. Oregon Trail card. In, here in Oregon, they call it the Oregon Trail card. And I thought that was oh. kind of like, I mean, what, what symbol of resilience and endurance and overcoming incredible odds, uh, making a trek across the country and then putting that on the yeah <laughs> the naming the food stamp card on it so. yeah uh, yeah that's pathetic so i guess now people i guess oregon thrived itself on not having a sales tax i guess there is a small sales tax now there correct 
Yeah, on on uh, on health uh, on health care insurance. Yeah. Oh, so okay, so you it just okay. Yeah, I, I've wondered how does Oregon get away without having a sales tax? We have a gigantic income tax, and it's like it's like nine percent for most uh, Oregonians, and then it's even a little bit higher uh, for higher income Oregonians. But yeah, so with a nine percent income tax, you're taking a lot of money out of people. Um, but I prefer an income tax over a sales tax because um, with the sales taxes, they always just inch upwards, and they always they always keep growing. There's like 10,000 sales tax jurisdictions in, in the country, and they just they just spread like wildfire. Uh, now, I did, now that's a huge debate between conservatives in the country and even amongst my board because I have people who who see sales taxes being uh, more, uh, you know, um, uh, more beneficial than uh, income tax. But I, but we do get government gets its money, uh, no matter what, and it's really a matter of of how it spends it. And um, unfortunately, Oregon, Oregon just does incredible government waste projects that yeah. are just, uh, just astounding. I mean. It, so basically, let's get back to this Measure 5 thing real quick, cause, uh, and then I want to get into some topics about freedom. Uh, so do you have any idea, and I maybe you don't know, because I've actually gotten into a discussion about Oregon and Measure 5 a few years ago with someone, and he said, yeah, maybe they're using, the school system is using Measure 5 as an excuse maybe to not do a lot of these social programs that you as a blind person have benefited from uh, because that never mind the fact that the state still has a lot of money and you kind of alluded to that uh, but they would they might use measure number five as an excuse to cut this program this program and I'm not talking about food stamps or whatever although uh, well that's it I'm just talking about these programs like uh, the summer work experience program for a blind person which Oregon started back in 1978 like you said at the height of uh, when people were approving taxes and such did you see any of that going on where uh, school the Oregon School for the Blind or any school district was cutting their budget and were, was using measure 5 and as an excuse never mind they had a lot of money yeah well they they have a lot of money as I as I said total state spending per person we're in the top 10 we're like number seven mm-hmm. uh, I think we're way ahead of you you Utahns uh, so we, we've got the money but yet our schools are not performing as well and they always blame measure five we need more money we need more money um, and they waste a lot of money on stuff there was one school district that sent 27 employees to Monterey Mexico to go to a conference and it's like what you know oh yeah wasn't there, that back in uh, 2006 something like that it was it, it, it was uh, it was just indicative of some things they do and you know, once again, about Oregon doing something that the rest of the nation doesn't do. Um, a while ago, they cre- they decided to totally reinvent Oregon education. They said, "You don't need a diploma anymore out of high school. You just need we'll create these things called portfolios. What? And there'll be a big file in every student, and it will show all the projects you've done while in high school. And so when you go to Harvard, you go to apply for Harvard. You just go sit down in front of the Harvard." 
application desk and say, I don't need a diploma. I've got this big file. And look at this, because in Oregon we do it different. They reinvented grading. They reinvented just about every aspect of education. It was called um, uh, outcome-based education. And it lasted for about 15 years uh, before it just totally, the teachers hated it, the parents hated it. <laughs> and eventually it just collapsed. I mean, it cost, I mean, of course, it cost like $50 million to implement, just extra money just to implement this. You know, they reinvented the grading system, so you were no longer graded A, B, C. You know, they just changed everything, and it was a big, it was a big colossal failure, and it collapsed, it quietly just collapsed, and they just went back to the old ways. But it was just an example on how our schools, some people just took the reins and said, let's just, let's just, let's just do this nice big liberal project and reinvent education. Wow. Well, so let me ask you, uh, what the uh, Oregon Taxpayer Association, or Taxpayer Association of Oregon, what have you been successful at stopping? I know you were successful at stopping uh, Measurement 30, where Ted Gulengowski wanted to raise taxes. You put a stop to that. Uh, that was measurement 30. I know you were involved in that. What other things have you been successful at stopping, and what do you see the future of this uh, Oregon Taxpayers Association going? Well, they have a lot of, um, there's been a lot of taxes over the years, so that the one you mentioned was a billion-dollar tax that, that we stopped. There was a, it was like a $3 billion tax, uh, business tax that they wanted to do uh, last fall. Um, called Measure 97, and we were involved in stopping that. There was taxes. There's always a property tax trying to cut away Measure 5, uh, but we stopped that. So there are a lot of taxes, and uh, which, which you have to be careful about. Now they're trying to deal with these gross receipts taxes, and this is something uh, this is something that your listeners should be very aware of, is that sales taxes can only go so high. Once they get around 10%, which, which is where a lot of them are inching towards, um, the public really begins to feel uncomfortable. So what Europe did when they reached this point decades ago is they took the sales tax and put it behind the scenes through a value-added tax. That allowed them to go beyond the 10% and go as high as 20-some percent sales tax, but you never see it. The customer never sees it. They get the receipt, um, and so... Uh, different. There's different ways of taxing products, and the fact that the government is, is the, the politicians are realizing that if we can tax it so that the you, the consumer, never sees it, then when you pay this high price for your cantaloupe at the store, you can just get angry at the store and call them greedy. When it's reality, government is forced to price up. Actually, I want to elaborate on that because I went to Canada for 11 months. And I know exact. I think I know what you're talking about. Although up in Canada, they didn't seem very dis- discreet about it. I had to pay what was ultimately a 15% sales tax, and it actually said on the receipt, a certain percentage went to the country and a certain percent went to the state. I remember I added it up. It was about 15%. Is that kind of what you're re- you're alluding to? Because um, Canada was not discreet about it. I don't know how they got away with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, different jurisdictions do it differently, but it's it's that's what we need to be wary about. We cannot taxes must be transparent. We must see 
how much they're taking, and you must see where it's going. And so, um, that's those are very hard hard principles we need to uh, to hold as taxpayers because the moment they can hide where they're spending it or hide where they're getting it, we're going to lose the battle. So Oregon's trying to do something like this. They're trying to put a twenty percent sales tax. They're yeah, they're talking about yeah, they're talking about doing gross gross receipt taxes, which is a way of taxing, you know, taxing a product, uh, but through the business rather than uh, at the point of purchase. So on your receipt, then it may not say food tax. It'll just say whatever percent of sales tax, and then. I don't even know if sales tax is on my receipt. I haven't looked at a receipt in years, honestly. It'll basically be, you know, if the company, if you go buy $100 worth of groceries, you won't see it. But that $100 you gave them, that will now be taxed uh, to the company. And it will be taxed on sales and not profit. So you have a lot of companies, like grocery stores, are, you know, the margins of how much you make on the grocery store uh, is very small. It's it's on small products spread out, and so and some companies like agriculture they don't always make a profit in a year, so they're losing money even though they may sell ten million dollars worth of ag products. If egg prices go up and down or fuel prices go up and down, you could have a year you're not making any money. Mm-hmm. But if and so if you don't make money, you don't get taxed very much. But with a gross receipts tax, you're just taxing people. On their gross, you're saying, "Oh, you made, you brought in ten million dollars of revenue, Mister uh, Corn Grower, Farmer, and so now let's uh, let's tax you on ten million. You're like, "Wait a minute, I didn't make a profit that year." That's another trick behind this hidden gross receipts tax. You won't see it. You'll feel prices go up. You will never see the tax uh, advertised. Well. And uh, how successful are you at stopping a movement like that happening in Oregon? Well, there was a there was a, a, a tax that we helped to defeat uh, last year, and there's a gross receipts tax that they keep talking about. So we're this is something new, uh, and so we're we're trying to hammer it every time we see it. Yeah, and what other things have you been successful at stopping? Well, then there's always a. <laughs> regulation creep where they always want to um, you know come up with new ideas to kind of uh, they also want to do a thing where it's like a GPS tax on cars oh yeah so they don't oh, want I've, to yeah I've read about gas. that and you know we can understand that the thought behind it and that is you know some cars don't use gas like electric cars, and so eventually we just need to tax people by the mile, and what better way to do it with, is with the GPS, but the privacy concerns of that, and the, you know, the implementation of trying to do a, you know, trying to rig people's cars with a GPS device, and where you're tracked, um, I'm just sitting there saying there's got to be simple ways to do it, um, you know, to, to find ways to pay for transportation as technology changes outside of tracking where people are. You say, well, no, it's all going to be private data. Well, dude, your boss gets mad at you or you're in divorce court and someone's going to say, well, I'm going to prove that this person didn't work or I'm going to prove that this spouse was going to the wrong place. I want the data from the state telling me where I've been. You know, so it's like we're spending millions of dollars trying to come up with an idea that I think... um, 
is look in the wrong direction. So not to mention it'll be easier for the NSA to know where you've been. <laughs> not that they yeah. can't find out through your uh, electronic footprints anyway. But why yeah. make it a little easier on them? Yeah, yeah. We have an issue here where our uh, a lot of our cop cars are are uh, equipped with um uh, the cop car has a radar where it it is looking at every single license plate within view of the police car and it records it so it says so if you're next to a police car it records your license plate puts it into a database and so that way and the the, the, the civil liberty debate is how long should a cop car keep that because they're looking to see if oh this is a stolen car you know or there was a crime scene somewhere and this guy's car let's see where he was in the past week you know did he show up in the wrong town or whatever all right there's there's some legitimate debate there but the question is how long uh and how much information should these cop scanners uh keep on people yeah i don't think i haven't heard anyone have a good debate on that i'd like to know because i mean it's like do you do you need to know where i was for a year or five years from now um is that really relevant to uh, uh, a case? And where's our where's our civil liberty? So anyway, I know I'm kind of venturing off a lot of topics, but I always I try to bring out the most uh, salacious and most uh, kind of some of the weird stuff that the debates we're having here in Oregon. And and it isn't just in Oregon. We have food sales tax here, and uh, I don't know if it's on the receipt, but it, it's talked about a lot. I think we actually do have a tax on food here now. I know we do. I'm not sure the percentage. So, yeah, it, it, what happens in Oregon could happen anywhere. Yeah. But let's yeah. talk about something that really, I'm 37 years old. Um, something that really concerns me. People in my generation, maybe it's just because I'm around a different crowd. Well, first of all, most people that I interact with on a day-to-day -day basis do not like Donald Trump. Uh, most people I interact with on a day-to-day -day basis are very liberal. Uh, like I said, Salt Lake is more liberal than the rest of Utah. Even Utah County is getting liberal. And it's, the, you know, there's definitely a generation gap. The older people, they're very much uh, for freedom. They like Donald Trump. Certainly not my generation, and certainly not the generation uh, after me. Do you see any uh, younger people getting in the fight for freedom? What do you see happening there? Uh, with uh, millennials? Uh, younger people getting involved yeah, millennials in care about? Yeah, millennials and people younger than <laughs> us. And um, I, well, I would say um, there's a very uh, big libertarian uh, streak with millennials. Um, Where? I have yet to find one. Well, I think if you look at um, at some of the things uh, that where they show up on polling, you know, I thought it's interesting, though, that we've seen huge changes in polling uh, in, in three areas. Uh, one of them is gay marriage. Another one is uh, 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 how they stand on abortion being uh, pro-life, uh, the, the country has moved more pro-life, and another one is uh, marijuana use. And I, when I look at those three things, th those have seen in 10 years huge changes, and a lot of it is the younger generation. 
but also those th- those three topics are where there has been a, a very strong grassroots education reaching out to younger people the student activity the messages that young people get from those three topics uh, are a lot from whether it be media or student groups and so we're seeing uh, the youth change their their mind on where the the activism is and where um, but I would say with, with government there is a sense of uh, the, the younger generation doesn't want to see higher taxes they're very big on small business and working for themselves uh, and so when we talk about jobs 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 we need to talk about uber airbnb things where the younger generation is thinking hey this is the type of job i want to have we keep talking about manufacturing jobs but you know what manufacturing jobs are not the jobs that Americans are choosing to do and not the ones that younger generation are doing. The idea about on assembly line doesn't appeal to them. And so sometimes we're using the wrong message to try to reach uh, this younger generation. Um, and so, um, but the other thing too is that the younger generation still has the problem that every younger generation has and that they don't actually show up to vote. <laughs> and so it's, getting them to vote, that's going to be another uh, big obstacle. I just run into a lot of millennials, uh, my generation, oh, I hate Donald Trump, oh, I'm a liberal, I hate this, I hate uh, corporations, I you, I could go down the list. And it's everywhere, even in the church that I go to, uh, which we'll get into in a few minutes. And uh, I, I, I don't like to say this, but I don't see much hope for the up-and-coming generations of freedom? Well, I am always hopeful um, because I know these things go in seasons. And it reminds me of Winston Churchill once said about America. He says, Americans exhaust all other options before finally doing what's right. And America has been on the wrong side so many times. And then it just runs into uh, a season where it just bounces back and does the right thing. Um, And so I know that right now we've had unbelievable prosperity and peace uh, and that um, the part of what what we believe now may not be uh, what will happen in in five or ten years. It just depends on, on what the country goes through. Um, and so I would always be hopeful. It's just, and you can't forecast what it is because what the, the American experience is that the things that have hit America, the Civil War, the Great Depression, um, all kinds of things hit America that no one would have ever expected. And it changed the country uh, because of it. Uh, and so I know things are kind of. I, I really see a lot of danger signs and warning signs uh, in the country, but I always try to be hopeful and optimistic because I know we've, we've been here before in different ways, and I know that there's it could change very quickly for the better. So I try to be hopeful because uh, as conservatives, that's one of, the, one of the worst things that we do when we communicate. It gets back down to communication again is that we are almost... Uh, we look at hope as some type of uh, we almost have an antidote for hope or something like that it's like we don't even like to be inspirational or hopeful in our message 
but we need to because that will motivate voters more than fear. Mm-hmm. That's what Ronald Reagan did. Uh, when I look at Rush Limbaugh, who is probably the greatest communicator uh, in politics uh, ever, man, when I look through his old books he put out in the 90s, I was like, man, he just found a way to took horrible situations and, and make them positive. And uh, he built the, the world's, or America's biggest uh, audience that way. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of things and uh, I'm discouraged about, but I do try to remain hopeful. What do you think it's, it'll take for young people, my age, younger people, 20s, late teen, early to late teens, what do you think it will take for uh, people to have a major change in this country to really endorse freedom, low taxes? Less government involvement in healthcare. What? 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 Do you kind of do you think it'll take a major catastrophic event? No, you know sometimes. Uh, well, well, any any national event could can change the the, the the public perceptions very quickly. But it also sometimes happening on the local level uh, when you see states. If sometimes states are allowed to do it their way, saying, "Hey, we have a way of paying for healthcare." Um, and it paves the way to do that. Um, that will bring a lot of change. Uh, it, it always does. And um, but I think the the younger generation is becoming very uh, very supportive of, of free enterprise principles because of Uber and uh, Airbnb. I mean, for goodness sakes, I just started getting this uh, Uber app that allows you to order from restaurants, and so the Uber driver picks up your yeah, restaurant Yeah, Uber order. Eats. Yeah, we don't have it in Utah yet, but I'm hoping it'll come soon. I found, my say, uh, found myself ordering from McDonald's from my couch, and it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. I just had to do <laughs> it just to say I did it. Yeah. Uh, but so they are, in that respect, they are becoming very much in the small business. If you look at the institutions that Americans trust the most, there's only three that actually break the 50%. And that is uh, veterans way at the top, small business owners way at the top, and police just a little bit over the 50% margin. Those are three uh, wonderful institutions that have taken a, a beating, but the public still stands behind them, and the, the millennials are very much behind them. I'm very encouraged by that. Um, so... Um, if if and with taxes, look look at what the the Congress really has not passed that many taxes. They did with Obamacare. Okay, there were twenty one taxes involved in that. But think about the last time Congress has raised a massive tax increase on people. Uh, they did let the Bush part of the Bush tax cuts expire, but they had to keep most of them for the average people. But Obama couldn't come around and do a big tax. A lot of the taxes that are being passed are hidden ones. And so I still think that millennials are with us on that. Um, otherwise, you, 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 you would be, you'd be seeing Congress be passing a lot of taxes. No, I think, I think we've, I, that, uh, that arena. You have a point. I think the major, last major tax increase, as far as we will raise taxes, was back in 93. I remember that very well. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Now, uh, 
I happen to, I heard about you, and we can uh, do a plug here on my podcast. Uh, Tom Butler, former legislative member of Oregon, told me about you and said that you were pretty religious. And uh, apparently, I guess you and Tom have talked about what do we do to solve this? And you couldn't come up with an answer. He couldn't come up with one. And you were the first one to say, I think it's time to go to the Lord for this, uh, to see what he would have us do. Now, I guess I need to be very careful in how I phrase this question. Do you know, do you want to talk about an instance where you did do that and you saw a miracle? I, you don't have to go into great length details. I'll let you decide on that one. <laughs> no, I mean, God is proving himself all the time. When, when we, you know, the Psalms say it over and over, if you seek after God, um, you know, he, he's going to be found. Um, I think there was one time when, I, uh, when I was just starting this organization, um, uh, I, uh, got my name. There was, other, there was other political people involved in Oregon. And so I went to them and said, Hey, I hope you don't mind if I can form a taxpayer group. I think Oregon needs it. And I, I got their blessings. But within, uh, within the first year, I was very successful in one of the rival, uh, taxpayer groups decided to take my name uh and they just used it and they re- registered my name in reverse so oh, wow. instead of the the taxpayer association of oregon they they called themselves the oregon taxpayer association same name same three letters same three words just a, and he and this guy was the most famous guy in oregon and he was fundraising off of it and it it just it just broke me up because i'm sitting there saying my God, I can't compete. This is my first year out, and one of the biggest name political names in Oregon just took my name, and is now, and now you know is now doing a, is now going public with it. And it's sort of like if you come up with a book for kids on how to learn math by surfing, and you have your first book out, and then Disney says, "Hey, I'm going to go do that," and, uh, and they do the same thing you're doing, and Disney puts it all over the country. It's like, oh my God, I'm toast. And I tell you, I could not. I was so distraught. I was young. This was my first year of doing this. Uh, it just, I was so full of stress, and I could not eat. I could not think. And I did everything I could to get this guy to, to change his mind, but he wouldn't do it. And I remember as I was driving to a to a 2.30 meeting, uh, and this, I, I could not get this out of my head. I couldn't even work. I was thinking about this all the time. And then I heard God's voice, and... God basically said, do you think I can do this for you? And that was a good question for God to ask me because I was full on anxiety, stress. And I had to answer God because he asked me the question and I said, no. And tears started coming down my eyes. I said, no, God, I don't think you can help me. You don't know how prideful this person is. You don't know how screwed up the situation is. I don't think you could help me, and I'm sorry for saying it. And boy, man, the tears were flowing. Uh, I felt a lot of grace in that moment for some reason, like like God was glad that I answered him honestly. I went to my meeting, and uh, and I came back to the office. And when I came back to the office, the, the lady says, "Oh, you have the facts." <laughs> the facts was an apology statement from the guy who took my name, saying. Uh, I won't do this anymore. I've released the name, and 
and that fax came in, would you believe it, at the time I was in the car and when God spoke to me. When God wow. said to me, do you think I could do this? <laughs> and I just was telling him, no. I was telling God, no. He, I said, I don't think it's going to change. And I was telling God he couldn't do something while at the moment he was sending a fax answering my prayer. Can you believe that? That's a good story. Yeah. Now, uh, just yeah. to uh, quote here, I, I need to end the podcast soon, but this is an LDS Live podcast, so I need to tie in the LDS religion somehow, because there are, even though we've talked about a lot of people my age aren't in the fight for freedom, at least that I know, but there are a lot of uh, LDS people. I mean, if you want to go down and look at uh, what happened in Nevada with the Bundy Ranch, they're very LDS down there in uh, Las Vegas. Um uh, you obviously know Tom Butler. I don't know how uh, if you've had any interaction with other LDS people. I imagine you have. Oh yeah, we have, we have another one of our uh, other premier board members is uh, LDS. So we have we have uh, we have two of them on our board and uh, great minds, great heart, great principled people. That's how I know uh, mm-hmm. Mormons. Uh, they're always uh, dependable and reliable and full of faith. Uh, hope I've been dependable. I know I've had to call. I know I've had to uh, get the podcast uh, pull it on, uh, change it a few times. Hopefully, I've been dependable enough here. Uh, <laughs> You're the worst. You're the worst. No, no, no. Just fine. Just fine. So. Um, well, that's great. And uh, you know, Ezra Tap Benson. You might want to look him up. He was the former Secretary of Agriculture. Um, he said this, uh, since we're talking about millennials and freedom, I, I do remember this quote here off the top of my head now. Uh, he said, uh, and uh, maybe you can elaborate, this might be a good place to end the podcast. He gave a speech at uh, Brigham Young University in 1987, where he said, and by the way, let us uh, I want to uh, interpret this quote here as soon as I'm done, because it can easily be misinterpreted. Um he, uh, Joseph Smith, now there's uh, evidence that maybe he didn't say this directly, but he said something like it, that the U.S. Constitution would hang by a thread, and it would be the elders of Israel, meaning the LDS people high up in the priesthood or whatever, that would save it. Now, I don't think that he, there's uh, people going back on that quote now, and it was never written down. That was interpreted. I mean, it, he obviously said something like that. I don't know that he said it to the exact, but here's what President Benson said. It will not be Washington that saves the Constitution, nor will it be the LDS Church. It will be, it could be you as an individual. Uh, what would you say to that? Uh, it's always been that way. It's always been that way. We always expect the top-down, the people and the leaders to change, uh, make everything, but it's really the, the people. Um, and when uh, when the people change their mind, it changes the whole country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people have saved America many of times through the grace of God, um, and uh, we are very fortunate because God has really moved uh, the people to do the right thing, even though they, they get late to doing the right thing <laughs> yeah. in America. We, 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 we've been on the wrong side enough times, but we eventually, as Winston Churchill said, 
we Americans do the right thing after exhausting all the all other options. Um, yeah, and so by God's grace and His direction and His Spirit and uh, His Word, we we find the right way to do it. And so I think we'll we'll prove prove that again real soon. Another thing that Ezra Tapp Benson said, and you can uh, elaborate on this as well. This is getting pretty deep here, but that's okay. He said that uh, he could see uh, Jesus Christ waving a heavenly banner, uh, waving an American flag when he comes again. Do you want to elaborate on that? Jesus Christ is waving an American flag uh, when he comes again? Yes. Um, I don't know about that, um, because I think that uh, Christ is, is above... Uh, above politics, it's above nationality, um, and I think that that is. Uh, uh, I I think that the you know the the flag tries to stand for something bigger, and that bigger thing is God and His values. And so I think. I think. Um, uh, yeah, that's probably how it. I'd probably say it. I mean, America has had a chance to say that if the people are good, you can have a great country. Sure. Yeah. We, we, we're, we're kind of proving that, and then now that Americans are getting kind of like a little bit self-centered and me, 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 we're, be, we're beginning to prove, sometimes we act like uh, Israel in the Old Testament when we yeah. begin to murmur, and so I just want to see a good turnaround. So. Uh, by the way, I do need to have you stay on as soon as I end the podcast here, but uh, real quick, I ask people one question, I know you're not Mormon, but what is the favorite what do you like the most about your religion or what i don't even know what religion you are you're obviously christian uh, but what maybe the church yeah, you go to i or, attend a uh, a four square faith which is one of the larger evangelical denominations very big on on missions oh, okay uh, around the world so they don't they don't they're very quiet uh i mean our church has like three thousand people what is it called again the assembly of what four it's called Foursquare. Okay. Yeah, I've never heard and, of it. Uh, yeah, they don't do a lot of uh, self-promotion, but they are really one of the larger churches in America in terms of denominations. Oh. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I really like them because they do... They dedicate a lot towards uh, mission activities around the world, and so, and I, through my church, have gone to India to help out a girls' school, gone to Haiti to help out with earthquake relief, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of good stuff that's happening in America, a lot of stories that never make the, the newspaper. Oh, I was going to ask you one more question. I earlier said that uh, your website is like the Drudge Report of Oregon on steroids. Do you personally put the links up to the, the website every day? Because it's pretty up to date. How does that work? Every morning, well, we, we have a team of people who do it, and sometimes I, I'm the person who wakes up early in the morning and does it. Sometimes it's okay. uh, our helpers. So. Yeah, it's a really good website. Yeah. Well, folks, uh, that'll be it for uh, this week's podcast. Uh, I'm not sure when I'm doing another podcast. I have a few things in the works. I have a lot of things. It may be a good month or so before I get back into it, but enjoy this podcast. And, of course, you can always go back into the archives as well. I'm on iTunes and... Uh, Eventually, I need to work on getting on Stitcher, don't I? And that'll be it, folks. I'm glad uh, glad that you were on the podcast here, Jason. It was glad to, I was glad to have you. Thank you. 
Hang on just a second. Got to turn on my screen reader. 